Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Webb. Hello. And Dixie Cochran. Hi there. Hello. Hello, both of you. You know what? I came to a realisation earlier today. that oh. Something I had never, ever realised before, and now I feel quite foolish for not oh. having realised, that King Bowser is a <laughs> cross between a cat and a Cooper. Or Koopaling, or whatever. I had no idea that Bowser has cat-like features. What? But, yeah. Really? Yeah, I, I know. You may not have noticed either. Apparently, um, he is supposed to be a sort of cross between a big sort of ginger moggy and, um, and that turtle-like Cooper, which is why he has the cat-like claws, and he has the uh, cat-like sort of white um, mouth thing and nose. I think he may even have whiskers or something like that. Um, but yeah, doesn't he actually have a cat form in one of the games? Yeah, uh, so yeah, he can actually turn into a stripy moggy cat in uh, one of the newest ones. I think it was on the Wii U, and they're remaking it for the Switch. It was Super Mario 3D World. He was, was called it. like yeah. Meowser. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he was always initially apparently a cross between a cat and a turtle. I am told. So there we go. I actually just did a search for King Bowser cat, and it turns out there is a Facebook group of a cat named King Bowser. Um, so it, it's just pictures of a cat. <laughs> maybe maybe okay, well. that's maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I have just been told about this Facebook group, and I was I've just fed everyone listening a line of bullshit. But it I'm wouldn't be the shocked. first time <laughs> on this podcast. I mean, I I'm can shocked. kind of see it though. He does kind of have a cat face and cat claws. I just yeah. thought of him as like a big lizard guy you know yeah because well he def- definitely has a i guess turtle like tail or lizard like tail yeah and, and like and, a turtle shell and he has like mm, scaly skin you know yeah but yeah the claws and yeah, the other face kind of and and he has big sort of bushy ginger hair doesn't he um yeah so yeah anyway uh that aside how are you both now i can't think about anything else except for what bowser <laughs> well Let's not get into why Donkey Kong is a gorilla. And not a donkey. It's true. It's weird. Um, One of my friends posted that meme uh, a couple days ago about how your bones are always wet. And that freaks some people out. uh, Because your bones are always wet. Um, But also, that made me bring up the uh, dry bones and dry Bowser. Oh, yeah. Means that there is probably (laughs) a wet or moist bones and a wet or moist Bowser. Mm. <laughs> That's always a I lovely thought. Bowser. You do. No one yeah, likes that it's, either. It's been a long time since we played Mario Kart. It really has. I think it's been since like midwinter last year. Yeah. yeah. It's strange, isn't it? How with uh, isolation, lockdown, and everything, a lot of well, and including us, we've probably been playing a lot more games, but far fewer games with each other. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, hmm. I don't play that many multiplayer games anyway on the regular. I I think part of it is that we used to play Mario Kart as like a one hour break here and there from our work. Yeah. And now like a lot of people have been struggling for the past year to get any fucking work done. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I don't feel like I deserve a break to play Mario Kart. Yeah, it becomes yeah. hard to justify, uh, which is silly because it's... Sh- you know, we don't need to justify it and it will probably make you feel better to do it. And I guess this speaks for everyone who is in this situation right now that hasn't spent the time learning another language or how to play the guitar. 
uh, that it's <laughs> you know you you justify to yourself why you don't have time to do this, but you must do that. And in actual fact, it's more of a psychological thing. Yeah. Um, I did so. play quite a lot of games over the break, though, which was nice. I played some Valhalla, um, played a lot of, eight, of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but I also bought Control on the Steam sale because my boyfriend was like, why don't you own this game? Like, it has everything you want. It's like a little creepy. It's a little paranormal. It's a badass female protagonist. Like, why don't you own this game? And I was like, I don't know why I never bought that game. And then I bought it and within like 20 minutes and it hooked me. And then I played through the whole game and all the DLC over the break. Now, granted, wow. that's, that's, that's that's only about a 30, 40 hour commitment. It's not like one of those games where like it takes you 120 hours to get through it. Um, yeah. But the story was just so interesting. And of course, if, if anybody played Alan Wake back in the day, it's got ties to Alan Wake, um, which I never right. played because as I also keep telling my boyfriend, they didn't know how to sell that game. Because um, yeah. yeah. Alan Wake just to look at it, I thought it was just an action game about some dude. Like, a, like I thought it was more like a Jason Bourne type character or something. Oh, like, I thought it was Max a guy who was going to yeah. go... Yeah, mm. I thought it was a guy who was going to just go shoot people. And I find out later that it's, like, a really interesting, ethereal, haunting story about, like, a writer. And I'm like, I would have loved that game. Yeah. But now it's ten years old, and I don't want to play it. it it's it's you, you still a very good game. Else. Yeah, yeah, you don't use a gun, you just use your flashlight, um, yeah, which is no. a nice motif or gimmick. Now uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it has more in common with Silent Hill than anything else, I would say, for my money, uh, but I would still recommend it. I think it holds up graphically. Um, okay, so I, th- playing something totally I might shonky. be able to get it on something then, because yeah, well, like I, I just don't... Like, now I know a lot about Alan Wake because I played Control and there's an Alan Wake DLC, because hmm. um, uh, they're in the same world. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's just it was really good. It's a really good game. Like I think everybody should play Control. The fights are interesting. I really like it. I like the, the bosses. Honestly, I, like the I, really should, I should. I should. It's, it's David played it on the PS4, and I really should play it. It's one of the main things I should get on the plane. I know. I'm. I may be about to disappoint you, and this could have been reversed. But I remember a certain point in the not so distant past that mm-hmm. there was news of Alan Wake being taken down from. GOG and Steam and the rest because of a licensing issue. I can't remember whether it was to do with music that was in the game or something like that. Um, I don't know about that. I know that the rights did just go back to the studio that did Control because that's why they could do that second DLC. Okay, so they they, they couldn't do the DLC until they had the rights to Alan Wake from Microsoft. So, funny story, I actually know the guy who was the lead writer on Alan Wake. Such a good friend of mine, uh, Miko. Um, Of course you freaking do. Everybody. Did he work um, with you on future arm already? Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> although I did work with him on um, the Walking Dead mobile game. I did. Yeah, of course. Um, did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not why I'm here. Um, it was because uh, Alan Wake was done through a publisher. Oh, okay. And the publisher still had some rights to it. And then apparently, when um, uh, blank in the name of the studio, uh, they went independent. I'm trying to remember uh, they what they're st- called. They're really good. Remedy. Yeah. Remedy. Remedy, Remedy, thank you. Um, Remedy kind of started doing their own stuff uh, because in the in the in the year of our Lord Steam, you don't really need a publisher as much anymore. Um, and so they're like, "Well, we'll just do it ourselves." And but that one still had some rights. Same with uh, the Max Payne ones, although that got wrapped up pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, so it's all been moved around. So it was, it was. I understand it was taken down mainly as a back end thing to get it transferred over to the right. 
Yeah, I actually just checked, account. and I can I can buy Alan Wake right now. That's all right then. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's a problem yeah. that come uh, that of course we encountered when we were doing Beckett's Jihad Diary. Because there you go, look at that segue. Wow. Ooh, uh, nice. I mean, we're not talking about Beckett's Jihad Diary today, but it doesn't matter. Um, with Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Because even yes. though right. Vampire the Masquerade was, of course, owned by CCP and then Paradox at the time that we were doing Beckett's, uh, the characters that were present in Bloodlines were still owned by Activision, uh, if mm-hmm. I recall, unless they had somehow already appeared without any kind of uh, clash or accusation in previous media. Like, uh, I think La- Prince Lacroix had turned up in the Gehenna novel as a name drop. And yep. so it's it's kind of one of those things where, well, if it sets precedent and no one has raised it as an issue, we can get away with that again, but we can't push everything else. So that's why Jeanette and Therese, for people interested, are referred to in a very offhand way in Bacchus Jihad's mm-hmm. diary. One of the Malkavians says, oh, you know, I have um, a pair of child... Uh, uh, it's a Malkavian with multiple personality disorder. He says, uh, I have a, I have two childer who I believe are the shared barons of Santa Monica now. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or worse that effect. Or I embraced one and my brother embraced one. And so any fan of Bloodlines, of course, knew who they were referring to. Uh, but we couldn't just name drop them until quite late into the process, if I recall, because I think at some point Martin... Ericsson, formerly of Paradox, got in touch with us to say, hey, I want you to put Damsel in this book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if it was coming down from on high that we could do that, then that was fine. And so you've got right. a few sidebars from Damsel in Beckett's Jihad Diary that were very much the last thing we added to the manuscript. Yes, yeah, so my NDA is expired, so I can talk about some of that. Mm. Um, with CCP, uh, uh, the contracts with Activision were kind of lost. Uh, and the CCP legal didn't really want to go through the efforts of trying to figure out what the contract actually said. Because if you go to a company and says, hey, the contract we have to you is gone, could you please send us a copy? You don't know what you're going to get. It's like, oh, yeah, you got this contract. It says you owe us 150% of all your profits or whatever. you know. Um, so they were trying to find a way to reconstruct that. And basically just said they, they just didn't bother. Just don't mention it. Um, Paradox has been with an also being a video game company that's a little closer to the infrastructure with, with uh, Activision then Icelandic CCP was, um, they had a chance to actually talk to Activision and get some stuff sorted out. Um, so a lot of it was just came down to the contract was so old that they didn't really have it anymore. And it's like, I don't know. We don't know what we agreed to or didn't agree to. So let's just not deal with that. Hmm. Hmm. It's, uh, well, obviously it's something that afflicts uh, licensed tabletop RPGs quite often. You can see it with yeah. Firefly, Buffy... Uh, obviously, the Street Fighter role-playing game that White Wolf published in the nineties—the lost classic that is Street Fighter role-playing. The, the lost classic—it's—it's <laughs> it's, it's cheesy, uh, but I think there's there's some stuff to love in there. Um, but yeah, of course, when a company moves on or a license expires, that's it. You can't then go ahead and re-upload it. Um, yeah, uh, and so it was a surprise when it was only last year, wasn't it? I think. DC Comics, uh, which I know is, uh, it should just be DC, but they 
released the old Mayfair version of the Watchmen role-playing game that yeah, was an extension to Deep Sea Hero. Yeah. So I, I've got the physical source books from way back when uh, uh-huh. because they contain canonical material because Alan Moore wrote content for the RPG. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, they weren't on sale for terribly long because of all of that. Um but yeah, I think it was to tie into the Watchmen TV series uh, that was on HBO. Mm-hmm. They decided to release the three Watchmen source books again uh, via the on DC website. I think that's the only place you can buy them offhand. Uh, I may I could be incorrect. I think there's uh, some. I think there's some of the some material was also put into one of the omnibuses because I remember saying that too. Because I was just like, "Wait, what? Where'd they get the rights for that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, it's actually the uh, Watchman, um, watching the Watchman. Uh, it's a right. big Dave Gibbons, so the artist from Watchman. Uh, it's his big omnibus talking about the creation of the comic, and some of the Dave Gibbons created art that was only in the RPGs was in there. So that was oh, uh, that nice. was released. Uh, uh, that was when I became aware of the the fact that an RPG even existed when that came out, and that was released to coincide with the Zack Snyder movie way back. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, DC then just sat on it for a while, by the looks of it, and I guess not every company views tabletop RPGs as a something worth pursuing. But the Watchmen TV series was a big enough hit that clearly justified it. And I know we're sort of on topic, but this is interesting, so I'm going to go into a little bit. Um, Licensed games are kind of in a weird space because they're licensed. Um, there's a kind of a canard about uh, licensed games are all terrible, and that's that's largely true, but not completely true. There's some genuinely <laughs> classic games that have been lost because of that. Um, I know, like, I, I personally lament the uh, Marvel superheroes role playing game, but more specifically, I'm thinking of the Ducktales Nintendo game. Um, is a yeah. genuinely good game uh, that just disappeared for a long period of time because of the rights. And then finally uh, uh, a company came got came to a deal with Disney and so they did a, a remastered version of it about six or seven years ago. Um, but I mean, it's a genuinely good platformer. Uh, the, you know, and to the point where people were trying to find a way to resell it without the DuckTales IP, but the whole jumping with your umbrella thing was so iconic and so good um, that it was hard to divorce. So, I mean, it's it's... One of those rare games from the '80s, where it's a really fantastically good licensed game, um, and in fact, a fair chunk of the um, Disney licensed video games from the '80s and '90s, like the Aladdin, was pretty good. Um, uh, was the Lion was King, good. yeah, yeah. And, and they were crucially hard. They were I still own yeah, no, Aladdin hard. and the Lion King and all those, and I still own my SNES. Yeah, oh, really? I played them on the Mega. Dri- well, it was called the Mega Drive over here, the Genesis. Uh, Genesis, my sister yeah. had a Sega. Um, but I think more tragic is the the games. So there was an awful lot of third party games released on the NES, more so mm-hmm. than on the Sega Master System, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them, of course, only released in Japan. But they were produced by studios that maybe made one to three games and then just disappeared up their own tailpipe at which point the the licensing issues because they were never sold to nintendo in fact nintendo brand games the the cartridges well not the cartridges the cardboard boxes they were sold in would always have a stamp of nintendo seal of approval and the other games wouldn't if i remember correctly and 
unpicking the rights to all of those uh, studios that have just vanished Died. in the late yeah. 80s is far too much work for any company like Nintendo to go to, which is why when you have the Nintendo Classic, uh, which does have a lot of games on, or the Nintendo Online on the Switch, you are only ever, for the most part, going to get Nintendo licensed games as opposed to third-party games, because unless that's a studio that's still going or got renamed or absorbed by a bigger studio, it's something that wound up a long time ago, and the rights just presumably defaulted to one person or yeah. whoever was the you know whoever was on the board of directors if you like uh, of the company when it wound up and finding those individuals must be one hell of a pain or uh, so- even worse is the company mm-hmm. goes to bankruptcy court someone they, they they sell the assets off piecemeal and so a piece of that license went to one person a piece of that license went to another mm. person the rights are divided up between several different groups right. mostly just investors who have no clue what they even own yeah yeah sometimes they go to massive companies as well uh, like supermarkets yeah. and uh, and software companies that yeah just like the sound of it or you know bought it cheap in case they could turn it into something several years better to own it and do nothing with it than let someone else have it and make money off of it yep yeah well speaking of which cults of the blood gods <laughs> <laughs> nice segue perfect it only yeah. took us 17 minutes and 15 seconds to get to the actual topic of today after talking about ip law for a little while yeah well it's, I was just talking uh, about how cool control was. I didn't mean to spark this whole thing, but here we are. Um, <laughs> while y'all were talking about all that, though, I did buy Alan Wake, and it's installing right now. So, oh, <laughs> you, you could have completed good, good. it by the time we got to the end of that. It's like fifteen bucks. I guess I'll I'll buy it on Steam. Why not? I um, I I I know kind of how it ends now because I played Control. <laughs> uh, True. Uh, the one thing, uh, one more thing, I'll say about Alan Wake. Is, and this, doesn't, this doesn't spoil one more question uh, it doesn't spoil <laughs> anything of the plot is there is a point at which during the mystery slash adventure mm. that one of the characters, the supporting characters says you know what, all of this all of the stuff going on in this town is beyond me it's too dangerous let's get the hell out of here and it is so refreshing to not mm-hmm. only have a supporting character that can see all of the weird shit that you can that proves it's not all in your head that you know there there is someone there who is reacting to it as well but also right. that you agree <laughs> and you decide okay let's go and uh, i won't tell you what happens next but it's so unusual in horror, whether it's in a video game, hell, uh, we, we can tie this into a segue, or a movie, or an RPG, where, and of course in an RPG it would commonly derail it if you did, where characters act in a logical manner and think, you know what, this is far too uh, dangerous for us, let's retreat, and if we come mm-hmm. back it will be tooled up. Uh, it's the old Call of Cthulhu issue of, well, yep. why didn't we come in with automatic weapons? Because <laughs> we, we clearly needed them. <laughs> we kind of did that in our uh, our Scion game that, that that you ran for us, where we like went and found the like drain pipe with the Loki Scion on it, and then we were oh, like, yeah. okay, we're going to go gear up. <laughs> we'll be back. Hope that yeah, guy yeah, didn't I, die in the meantime. Yeah, I half expected you, well, mostly expected you to just venture in, because you're heroes. Well, not quite. You're origins. <laughs> um, 
But no, you did the logical <laughs> thing and went to a pawn shop and got various treasures to bribe the giant with that didn't work. But but also bats. To and bats, hit, yeah. To hit the giant with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fun. Uh, so yeah. Good times. The reason we are here today, 20 minutes in nearly, is to talk about Cults of the Blood Gods because this week it has gone on sale in PDF and print-on-demand on Drive Woo! for RPG. Cults! Yeah, Cults of the Blood Gods. Is that, is that the official theme song? Yeah, when you cut to commercial break. It never sounds like that during the <laughs> opening sequence, which is more, Cults of the Blood Gods! <laughs> <laughs> um... And lots of flashing strobe lighting. It's not suitable for people with epilepsy. I feel bad that Rich listens to this right now. He he loves us. But yeah, when you cut to the commercial and cults of the blood gods, it's cults of the blood gods. Be right back. Because that's a church of sets member sort of pointing at the camera and winking when that happens, and it's all nice right. writing. Don't worry, you're <laughs> safe with me. Um, so, yeah, Cults of the Blood Gods is on sale. The traditionally printed version is being traditionally printed, and so we'll be going out to Kickstarter backers as soon as possible, uh, COVID mm-hmm. and insurrections permitting. Right. <laughs> um, but it's very exciting because it's yet another V5 book that we have made available to people. And it's fantastic that we've been able to release this in print on demand. Yeah, um, I'm so excited. For a while, we were concerned that we weren't going to be able to, along with the source books, the stretch goals that we've unlocked and diligently written and are now getting arted. Uh, but they are all going to be released via print on demand to allay anyone's fears. Super exciting for me too because that's my first published V five writing in one of those stretch goal books, and I really wanted a copy. Yeah, I mean, all the V five books for me that you've edited, and you have never just imposed a paragraph of your own devising into the middle of it with the excuse of "I think this work would look better if it read like this." <laughs> <laughs> this book needs uh, more Dixie. Yeah, <laughs> I will be a writer of V5, and now you are. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I know we've discussed Cults of the Blood Gods before. We did the retro, not a retrospective, we did my design diary for it way back yep. when, when we were doing the Kickstarter. And, well, that's when we uploaded it. I'd, of course, been making it for quite some time. Uh, but I'm interested to hear from both of you. Uh, or admittedly, I'm the host. Uh, whether you have had any interaction with the material from Cults of the Blood Gods since, or whether you have any favourite parts of the book that people may not be aware of, uh, you don't have to have read it from cover to cover, and you can promote your own material or things you've really focused on. So let's start with you. I was Dixie. about to say, I know, I know, <laughs> you wrote the fiction, Eddie. So you could just say, yeah, was, the fiction, fiction is great. The fiction is wonderful. Blew me away. Yeah, <laughs> I like best, knew best, you best were. Damn fiction. I knew you were going to start with me as I was like hurriedly going through my <laughs> downloads folder to find well, it so I could remember things. Um, well, I, mean, okay. I, I, I read quite a bit of it, um, obviously, when we were doing uh, Children of the Blood, because mm. they all had to be cultists. And yes. so I had to read up on the cults. Um, but also, I'm really bad at remembering names of things. So that's fun. I do quite like the Bahari 
Um, I've always been a, been a fan of that. That's pretty cool. Um, do, 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 do. What's well, the one me, that let, Baptiste let, is part of? Oh, which one? Are so you're going to be testing my bloody knowledge. The now. really, I, the really pretty ones who are into being pretty, and that's all the they're Nephilim. into. The Nephilim. Yeah, the the, the Nephilim were Nephilim. super fun, and that was definitely the first cult I kind of like hung up on and was like, okay, I'm definitely making a character that's in this one, you know? Well, let me tell you something, brother. I will... <laughs> and this will give you enough time to, to look into it a bit more. Something I wanted to mention about the Bahari is they've been a quite a divisive, uh, divisive cult over the course of Vampire's history uh, mm-hmm. because they've been presented, much like, uh, Eddie, you've raised before, the La Sombra, in a quite a... I guess quite a different variety of ways. Yeah, uh, the Bahari have have suffered somewhat from sometimes being portrayed as this ultra masochistic cult that right. draws power from self flagellating and not just lots of bleeding. Uh, and it d- didn't necessarily, at least to my mind as a developer, gel with anything to do with the Lilith myth. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that from any perspective, and that I don't mean to uh, stomp on any previous creators. Of course, you know you're all entitled to your opinions, even if they are wrong. But <laughs> li- but likewise, you so also get the Lilith cult, the Bahari, sometimes presented as a big maternal cult, uh, all about uh, siring progeny, protecting children, and so on. And again, that's one aspect of Lilith worship that doesn't necessarily work entirely for vampire. And so you've Mm -hmm. got all these different conflicting viewpoints. And the way we handled it majorly in Cults of the Blood Gods was to put them in as very much... Uh, individuals who feel as if they have been wronged by the embrace, and they probably have been. Uh, A lot of people who join the Bahari have been wronged by their sires. There's very much a self-help group feel to the Bahari. They they are there for each other's mutual defense and uplifting. Um, But at the same time, there's a vengeful element to them, which is taken to abusive extremes at points because... Mm-hmm. Uh, being vampires, you can become consumed by your own vengeance, hunger for blood, and whatever else you so happen to crave. Totally. So, uh, I, I'm really happy with how the Bahari turned out in that book, and the feedback that we've received about how the Bahari have been treated has been, for the most part, very, very good, which is a relief to me. Yeah. Because there, there's a, certainly a um, strong. Uh, feminist vibe to the Bahari from certain viewpoints and uh, when you've got me developing a book I'm I am a man and it means I don't always see something the same way as a a woman might who is writing about feminists or feminism yeah. I definitely and, wrote the Bahari member I wrote as a feminist so yeah uh, and and I th- and obviously that that is absolutely fine. That's desired, but I can't always live the experience uh, of one of the characters that's being written, or the cults, or indeed the writer who is writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does seem that we've conveyed that uh, the feminist strength uh, that the Bahari needed 
as well as the potential pitfalls of any kind of movement that's taken to the extreme. Uh, and you see this more with the Gorgons, I think, uh, Daughters of Gorgo, I think they're called. Uh, I'm feeling very foolish for not remembering their name, um, given that I think they're called, I, they're called Gorgo's Nest. Gorgo's Nest, there you go. I have the PDF uh, open. <laughs> yeah, that'll help. Um, yeah, we've taken it to that extreme with Gorgo's Nest, where they are possibly Bahari that have taken things either too far, or they never were Bahari, and the Bahari just want to rub the this cult out because people are associating them with the Bahari. I like that kind of factionalism, uh, because it exists in our real world, so why shouldn't it exist in the world of darkness? Mm-hmm. That vampires are just as prone to leading towards extremes as the average mortal is. Right. So I'm glad I'm glad you raised the Bahari because they've been on my mind for quite some time. Yeah, no, okay, so when I like of course the cults I know the best are the ones that I wrote members for. Um, although I did skim through all of them at least. Um and I I really liked uh the ones I've mentioned already, obviously. Uh, I wrote one who is a Mithraist, just because that's always an interesting path to go down. Um, but then of, of the minor cults, I did the one true way in Servitors of Irad. Mm. And those were interesting. I actually really enjoyed doing the one true way, which is essentially a vampire pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that was just fun to write because I actually listened to a lot of, of podcasts about real life, like multi-level marketing scams. Um, cause I, I find the whole concept so interesting that people are still falling for these, you know, um, so many years after they were invented and are clearly not good. Um, and so because of that, I was like, I was like, I kind of want to write this person, you know, cause like I have, I have met this person, the person who's always trying to invite you over to have a party for whatever thing they're trying to shill that, that week, whether it's just, a, you know, clothes or essential oils or whatever. And it's like, that's funny to me that it, that it's a vampire doing it, you know, mm. <laughs> it's just such a banal thing for a vampire to be doing. Well, I've, uh, so I came up with a one true way in Beckett's Jihad Diary. I think that's where I introduced right. them. There was a there's a vampire in that book called the Master of Ravens, mm-hmm. whose name appears first of all in Lair of the Hidden, way back when. But he gets no little little to no coverage in there. He's not one of the Inconu in uh, Huna Doara, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he may well be opposed to them. <clears throat> and in Becca's Jihad Diary, you occasionally stumble upon these sort of flyers or vampires right. who are talking about having discovered the one true way. And yeah, it's it's got a very, for my to my mind, a very Scientology vibe. Yes. Uh, born again vibe to it where, you know, well, as the name implies, we know the way, and all you have to do is hand over all of your belongings. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, your a, it's a Scientology, Nexium, like all that stuff kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but vampires are so desperate, or some vampires are so desperate that they believe it. They are so desperate for the possibility of redemption that even just the hope of redemption, that they sign up to it because the leader of this cult speaks with such passion and such belief mm-hmm. uh, which again is supposed to invoke shades of the real world and the way cultists operate in our world you know you don't get drawn in by someone who is incredibly uncharismatic or who doesn't promise you something and if, if, if you don't mind that's one of the reasons i actually liked about um cults of blood gods this is a 
book is that um, I had always felt that Vampire of the Masquerade was weirdly secular given the yeah. biblical origins of the characters. But basically, it's like if you want to play a religious vampire, you go play Sabbat. If you don't want to play a religious vampire, you go play the Camarilla or Anarchs. Mm. Um, and this was the first time I'd really seen in Vampire of the Masquerade any real detail. The idea that religion, like in the real world, is a very muddy concept. Um, it, it absolutely makes sense that vampires would have some form of faith because mm-hmm. you're literally descended from a biblical character. It's like you can't really shake that off. But on the one hand, if it's objectively true, there's nothing to have any faith in anymore. Um, but on the other hand, you can't really get away from the conversation of faith that Vampire the Masquerade was just trying really hard to not engage with in a world right. level, right? It's like it was all very personal. It's like, okay, it's your personal humanity and and then everything else. Like it, it makes sense that vampires are gonna get together and share some kind of, of experience to try to draw meaning from their lives, particularly given yeah. the fact that humanity is so important to them. So it was nice to see a book that actually addressed that and showed that like all things about vampires, ultimately it's gonna be on some level a scam or a manipulation. Yeah, and and the very cynical people may well feel that way about organized religion, even the successful ones. Sure. Um, and despite the fact it can bring an awful lot of um, peace and uh, understanding, I guess, or give people a lot of understanding by belonging to a faith. And I, I and for that reason, I think you could belong to the Church of Set, which, from mm-hmm. our outside perspective, we think, oh, they're a bunch of corruptors. They basically are snakes in the Garden of Eden. Why would you go along with that? Because there are people in the Church of Set who genuinely benefit from being a part of the Church of Set, that before they were yep. Setites, their life was off the rails. They were prepared to greet the dawn. Uh, they had slumped their lowest low. But now someone is reaching out of the darkness to say, there is another path for you. you know, all you have to do is is follow these commands and you can be like I am. I, I was nothing and now I'm a success. And it's the, the line fed by pretty much every motivational speaker uh, mm-hmm. that you've ever heard. But it works on some people and it does genuinely improve the lives of some people while sometimes cutting into that life uh quite often cutting various parts out of that life reshaping your identity um one one tv series that i i would recommend i think i mentioned it a few weeks ago on the pathcast if not in a conversation with the two of you Mm -hmm. uh is The Leftovers. Uh, it's an mm. HBO show. It ran for three seasons. It's a complete series and uh, doesn't leave anything hanging by the end of it, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and it handles a phenomenon where 2% of the population just disappear. Right. And some people consider that they have been raptured. Some people believe it's a scientific event. It doesn't really matter the reason why, because the TV series is set three years after, uh, at least the first season is. Mm-hmm. And it, what it's actually dealing with is the psychological fallout on a population who are in many ways devastated, because 2% doesn't seem like a large number. It's mm-hmm. a bit like COVID now, I guess. There's a lot of people saying, well, that's not a big number of deaths. Well, it is when you add it to every other number of right. deaths. Um, right. But there's a fallout when an event occurs that you can't explain. When people disappear and there's no one there to grieve, there's no gravesite, there's no urn full of ashes, it's just 
a mystery. It's like someone being kidnapped. Yeah, I mean, like two percent uh, of the globe's population is still something like you know 160 million people. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what occurs in this TV series, which is largely just character focused, it deals with a handful of characters who are at some points tightly connected, at other points loosely connected. Their journey as characters dealing with the fallout of this departure event mm-hmm. and never really seeks to categorically define what happened because that's not the point of it now the reason i bring it up as connected to cults of the blood gods is because a lot of people in an event like that turn to faith and some people start their own beliefs uh some people will start you know that they they believe so strongly that this is what happened and other people believe them that of course cults pop up in a very organic fashion even if you're pretty much a cult of one and you are so adamant that everyone else thinks you're a weirdo for believing it, but you are so strident in your belief that nothing that they can say will dissuade you from your path. Mm-hmm. That feels very much to me like the cults in V5. And and I say V5 because, like you mentioned, Eddie, in previous editions of Vampire, religion was confined to the Sabbat for the most part. The, the Sabbat mm-hmm. and the followers of Set. Um, sure, but even the followers of Set, it was it was presented like it's a big con. You know, yeah, and, and then yeah. we got away from any any other in depth knowledge. Run, yes, it's religion, but it's all bullshit, and then just move on with it. Yeah, uh, but vampires, much as the characters in this TV show, the leftovers, they are all people who have gone through a trauma, uh, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a trauma that I guess most people would think of trauma as. It's mm-hmm. a life altering event that has made them have to reappraise the way they view the world and the people in it, their philosophy, their religion, whatever. And a lot of the time when someone is presented with that quandary, they are going to go to the person who claims to have the answers. And so I think in the case of V5, that a lot of people have asked me, why are cults only in Vampire the Masquerade now? Where have they been all this time? Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes I felt like answering, well, they've always been there. You have you see references to them in lots of books, so they've always been there. But another part of me thinks, well, Gehenna was supposed to be an apocalyptic event. Right. This was supposed right. to eradicate your people. And in some cases, it may have even done so. There's certain threads that have been left hanging for future books to cover, uh, such as the disappearance of all the Methuselahs and elders from lots of cities in the world. Mm-hmm. So your characters have been through the kind of event that would make them start looking elsewhere for answers. They no longer trust the Camarilla hierarchy because it did nothing to keep them safe. They no longer trust the Anarchs who are just focused on fighting the Camarilla because that's a very short-term goal when considering immortality stretching out ahead of you. And even in the case of the Sabbat, when the Sabbat um, made contact with the enemy in Mm -hmm. a Napoleonic way, it it broke down. You know, it did not survive the the wave of wave after wave of assault that they anticipated all these years of building up their army of blood fanatics. Mm-hmm. So lots of churches and fringe faiths popping up for me is perfectly natural in the world of darkness. Um, yeah. Particularly in this in the uh, early twenty first century, because we're now living in an age where there are people who unironically completely believe that the earth is flat. 
Yeah. You know, they, they have found mm-hmm. other people like themselves online and they have reinforced each other's delusions in the Nipsticker case um, to I the mean, point where they. QAnon. Huh? Like, I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another example. I mean, that, that, that's a little more conspiracy theory, but like, um, uh, uh, there are people who, you know, there are people in this world today who genuinely look at Vampire the Masquerade and worship that. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. I've been contacted by those people, um, and they're like going, "No, the, the the Book of Nod is a real book that was really written, and there's there's truth there." And it's like, "No, I know the guys who made that up." I mean, <laughs> it, it is a real it's... book that was really written, but it was really written in the '90s by a bunch of employees of White Wolf. <laughs> yes. So, um, it, it, but again, like if you, no matter what you believe right now in this world, you can find someone who shares that belief with you, and then you go, "Oh, well, I must that must be true," because somebody else believes it. And so, of course, vampires, knowing that everyone lies, doesn't change the fact that you want to find the truth. In fact, I think it makes it even more compelling that you want to find the mm-hmm. truth if you know that everyone's lying to you. At some point in time, you have to trust somebody, and that's the paradox. Some of the, one of the paradoxes of being a vampire in Masquerade is that you have to trust somebody, but you can't trust anybody. And religion is a perfect way to kind of sidestep the issue. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to put my faith in this one thing and just stop worrying about it. Uh, so there's, there's a comfort there, especially if you live in a mm-hmm. paranoid society. It's the reason why um, a lot of people involved in espionage either are complete and, and devout uh, people of faith or are just other atheists and nothing is true it's it's all it's all lies right um i mean but there's, there's not a lot of middle ground i found with a few people i know from the intelligence community because same thing it's like if you, if you have to just question what everyone is saying to you at some point in time you either say okay i, I gotta have one thing to believe in or you just go nope it's all lies fuck it yeah uh, i think um one of the well one of the aspects that i i really like in cults of the blood gods is that and and actually, you know what? I will give credit to Vampire the Requiem here because uh, Vampire mm-hmm. the Requiem has the long care at Sanctum. Yep. And uh, and while the Masquerade cults have this as well, the uh, long care at Sanctum are the well are the religious group, arguably. I guess Circle of the Cronas as well in Requiem. But the reason I'm particularly attracted to them, both as a player and as a writer, is the fact that if you are desperate for belief or just wanting answers, even you know, just casually wanting answers, you're, you're wandering down the street, you've been to Elysium perhaps, and you're wondering, what does all this mean? Where does my path mm-hmm. take me? You're not just putting blind faith into this group into the sanctified, you are able to witness them performing miracles. And and the same goes for these cults that have Ancilla and Elder members. If you're a fledgling, your experience with disciplines is, if you like, the one dot or two dot powers. It's very rare that you're going to see a fledgling with three dots in a single discipline. In on average, one would assume, but if you go to a temple of set and you are able to see a vampire literally shift into the form of a gigantic python, to be rather stereotypical about it, sure, it's the kind of thing that's going to make you question the nature of your reality. Mm-hmm. And to quote Westworld, and um, 
And I think that is a really strong part of Vampire the Requiem and the reason the Sanctified have been able to survive for as long as they have. Uh, because they are, in many ways, for the organized religion side, or the Abrahamic side, I guess, the only game in town. Um, whereas, and I, I, but I think equally it works well in Masquerade with lots of small faiths springing up because no one has been able to su- successfully corner it. You can say that, um, yeah, for the last 500 years, the Sabbat have been the only game in town. So you can see why people didn't gravitate toward faith because you right. had to essentially those enslave there. <laughs> Yeah, you had to enslave right. yourself to a bunch of homicidal maniacs. Right. To to join the Sabbat, but suddenly the Mithraists look a lot more reasonable uh, because yeah they're not the Sabbat and yet they still promise you something. And, and I think your point about miracles is really interesting. Um, I mean, if you think about it, most one dot disciplines are some form of a little bit better, but still within reasonable human understanding, like. I can hide, but in shadows. I can hear really well. I can punch kind of harder. Um, and so we start getting into two, three, four dot disciplines. You start looking at things that are they're genuinely fantastic. And then Methuselah level disciplines might as well be magic. Um, so yeah, it makes a certain degree of sense that you can look at vampires who are more powerful than you and go, oh, that's a miracle. Um, it, it, it's from a reader standpoint sometimes hard to see that because it's it's codified it's like i yeah. know that is nine dots of serpentus and therefore it's not a miracle that is right. just a vampire power but if you're on the other side of that um hell even a guy turning into a giant eight foot tall half man half wolf is terrifying and potentially awe striking in, in the original sense um so it makes sense that at least younger vampires, it's like, well, trying to be a part of, of the great you know vampire Amway that is Camarilla, that didn't work. Um, that trying to put my faith into a giant blood-soaked army, that didn't work. Uh, and the Anarchs aren't really organized. They're just kind of, you know, lots of little pockets of one individual who has an ideology that's basically not those other two. Right. Um, so getting a, a group of people with similar beliefs together that you have some kind of community uh, that ostensibly is not any of those things, but if you get deeper in, they are. Um, it goes back to what they said before about Scientology. You know, it's like, if you know about Scientology, you go, how in the hell can you possibly fall for that? But it doesn't start that way. You know, you don't start knowing here's all the horrible things that we're going to do to you. Um, it starts off with We'll make your life make sense. We'll make you know. I know it's confusing, but this makes sense. This mm-hmm. is clear. This is understanding, and we have people who who understand you, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's really attractive to anyone, let alone being a vampire who feels like the world has fallen apart. Because in, G- in the case of Gana, it literally has. I think um, one of the writers on Cults of the Blood Gods wrote a chapter all about how to design your own cult. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's it's a fairly hefty chapter and deals with some very sensitive subject matter for some people. Uh, and so and we've put warnings in there in, in case it's something that you've been exposed to or something that you are sensitive around. Um, 
but it do, it, yeah, it deals with subject matter like love bombing, like uh, brainwashing, mm-hmm. and the that idea that when you join a cult, for want of a better term, one of the first things they often do is convince you to essentially strip yourself of your worldly attachments. Mm-hmm. Because when you are at a height of stress or, ner- or a point of nervous breakdown or what have you, one of the most cathartic things you can do is just walk away from everything, all of your obligations, and have someone tell you, it's okay to do that. I'll look after you so that when you do that, you won't just fall. And together mm-hmm. we will build you back up again. Yep. And you won't have to go back to any of that stuff. You won't have to go back to all of the other things that were making you feel bad about yourself because I'll put something in place that you can truly believe in that will make you a better person and, and say by you. And of course it doesn't always work. You know, if you've got a problem that is causing you to feel this way, that isn't just going to go away because someone has uh essentially indoctrinated you into a cult um it'll just manifest in different ways but again this chapter that we have in the book goes through the process both how it works for mortals and for vampires and it's gripping stuff to read uh and i know i say that as the developer of the book i didn't write it but i remember reading it and thinking wow okay this is dark this is horrific Mm -hmm. but of course there's a lot of truth to this because it's something yeah. we are able to witness mm-hmm. in our world as well. So whether you ratchet it up or not for the world of darkness, it's still horror and it's still abuse, it's still manipulation. And whether you wish to play through it, whether you wish to be the kind of vampires that liberate characters from this and then have to find somewhere, some way of handling the people that you have liberated because to go on about Trails of Ash and Bone for a moment, we have a story in that. That's one of the stretch goals that we unlocked with Cults of the Blood Goals. There's a story in that which is all about your characters are sent to fetch an errant child of a prince, a fairly standard plot, except the story starts with you just having killed the child of the prince accidentally, essentially. It ended up with a battle to final death. As the game starts, the ashes are crumbling in your hands. So post-medius res, if you like. And what you find at that point is, and you're in the middle of the bloody wilderness, that vampire's cult of mortals who for the last several decades have essentially been waiting on this vampire, uh, following this vampire's every edict. And now you've got the moral quandary of, well, what the hell do we do with them? Because we're not all trained psychologists and counsellors. We can't just put them in the good care of a psychologist right. and counsellor because that will breach the masquerade. Uh, there will, of course, always be players who say we should just kill them and protect the masquerade. But hopefully that will create division in the coterie and discussion. And your characters are likewise trapped in the wilderness because you're waiting for your pickup from the printer's envoy once the mission is completed. So you get to know these cultists. And when your characters are presented with that, and whether it's in this story, this chronicle, or whether it's using cults of the blood gods in general, you have the the follow-up that you very rarely get in other role-playing games, I find, where, congratulations, you have freed the cultists from the shackles of Master. Now what do you do with them? 
Yeah. You know, what where does your responsibility extend to? Is it humane to just leave them on the streets? Because what you have done, in a sense, is what this cultist did, or the cult leader did to them when they indoctrinated them. You have now stripped them of their belief. That does not mm. automatically make them better. It doesn't automatically integrate them into society. Quite the opposite. They were probably safer when they were in this awful cult in a mental state because they were caged. But now they are free to, what, break down, frenzy if they're vampires, um, sire without remorse because they're free, you know, to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it's it's an interesting moral quandary that doesn't often come up in RPGs. Uh, so when in D&D you free these people that have been captured by a dragon, let's say, what do you do with them next? Doesn't often matter. You get your experience, you move on to the next adventure. But in Vampire, it's very much more organic, oddly, considering you're undead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And, and it's... Um... It's interesting, we, we've talked a lot about the book, not about specifics per se, but I mean, it's one of the things that I was really intrigued by, the fact that even Cults of Blood Gods exist, is that it was a really cool way to explore this aspect, not only of Vampire the Masquerade, but also just this this concept mm-hmm. of cults beyond the, like you said, cults as bad guy wearing robes trope. Right. Um, most, that's really interesting. Most cults don't look like that <laughs> in, in real life. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's... That's that's our kind of like holdover like Illuminati horror movie cult. We're like, okay, they wear, wear robes and they chant and like we even have those kind <laughs> of cultists in like Pugmire, for instance, because right. it's a trope yeah. and we did that. But like in yep. the real world, that's what it looks like, especially since vampire is a modern day game. Um, I will say that one one of the things that I love that you put in the book in the uh, make your own cult chapter are the lists and lists and lists of like possible things for your cult to do possible names for the cult, like what, what different colors and symbols mean. Um, Because that's so helpful. If someone isn't like good at making this up like whole cloth, they can just kind of like pick and choose or roll some dice and figure it out from there, whatever. Um, That's really, really useful. And then of course we should probably talk about the Hakata I'm assuming before we uh, wrap this up. Yeah, well, uh, well. before we do, I mean, uh-huh. credit to you, Dixie, because the characters you created for Children of the Blood, and and the, this credit extends to the other writers too, but I, I was really very happy with your work on that book. Aw, thanks. Uh, it, is that your cultists aren't moustache-twirling villains. You do have villains in there, characters who fall within that Balthazar son uh, frame of, okay, I can see this character being more of an antagonist than yeah. a supporting you know (laughs) assist but at the same time i can see why the right coterie or the wrong coterie might fall in with someone like baptiste or use baptiste for baptiste's contacts and and abilities Mm -hmm. or likewise why he why that character may use a coterie in turn Uh, and you've got tragedy in there as well and now unless i'm mistaken did you write uh derek jacobson i did that's that's a backer character actually yeah, uh, yeah, we got the concept from Abaka, uh, but you you made a character who, for me, felt almost like Frankenstein's monster in Vampire, uh, in that he was so damaged, both physically and, and socially, that he was lurching from 
pillar to post, mm-hmm. trying to find purpose, and everything in his life was going wrong. It was a really sort of book of Job. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a he's a tragic figure. <laughs> yeah, uh, to the point I think I may have ended up. I can't remember if we, we Clara and I who co-developed that book, whether we put him on the cover or oh. whether he uh, or he's definitely got a full pager. Uh, I can't recall, but cool. we've got him in a back alley in London holding a a victim who he has errantly murdered because he has very little control when Poor it comes Derek. down to it. And it's got that Frankenstein's monster feel to it where he is clearly wailing and distressed because, oh, no, not another one. Yeah, uh, well, like, he, um, his his whole backstory is that, like, he he's from, the, like, the Victorian era-ish. Um, and mm. he, he came to London to try to feed his family during the uh, Year Without a Summer, which is actually a Dark Era's uh, chronicle as well. Um, yep. But it's it's a historical event that happened where there was a year where because of volcanic explosions and other things, uh, crops in England were affected by it. Um, and it was, it's, it's known as the year without a summer. It's, it's actually the year that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, um, yeah. which is cool because they just hold up in like a manor and wrote things and were, you know, weird uh, for that entire summer. But like <laughs> that's that's like he, he he's just there to feed his family and he keeps getting caught up in shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's sad, but like he's an interesting character because he is in a cult, and he is like an enforcer for the cult. But the cult takes care of him, and nobody yeah. else has. Like they give him a place to sleep during the day, you know. And all he has to do is occasionally punch a guy, and like that's okay. He was a pretty simple farmer. He didn't really he didn't ask for this, you know. They're they're the vampires that like seem to take joy in being vampires. People like Baptiste, um, or like uh, Ignatz, who I also wrote. Uh, very much take 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 joy in being the bad guy and in being the mm-hmm. vampire and in you know drinking people's blood and whatever else. But Derek really never did. Um, so he's just kind of like, yeah, I'll hang out with the Mithraists, I guess. They take care of me. They're nice to me. I don't know what to do with myself anymore. So yeah, yeah, he's he's surviving. Yeah, uh, which is I think a state that a lot of vampires are in. That that yeah, they aren't living. That's for sure. Some of them are. In a, in a warped kind of a way. Mm-hmm. But he is surviving night to night because he has the sponsorship of a pretty terrible cult in the Church of Mithras. Uh, but as you say, they're not asking him to perform human sacrifices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're asking him to occasionally rough people up. And he doesn't, he probably has the capacity to think about what happens later to these people I rough up or what happens to these people I kidnap and deliver to the church. But that but he almost willfully blocks that part out. Yeah, which which I think he is a just thing needs to survive. Which I think is a thing that people actually do when they're in cults is they, you know, yeah, yeah. they are grooming people, they are taking people, they are doing bad things. Like things things that from people from outside the cult are like that's objectively a bad thing. You shouldn't be doing that. But they're they have twisted it in their mind so much to be mm. like, no, I'm I'm helping these people, you know, by enslaving them into like Nexium or what have you. Like, oh, I'm I'm yeah. I'm I'm helping these women by delivering them to Keith Raniere. You're really not, <laughs> and anybody yeah. can tell that you're not. But you have to, you you believe that you are, and that's that's kind of where Derek is at. Is like his like the the cult of Mithras is is his family at this point because he couldn't go back and see his actual family. Um, even just the trip there would have been really hard for a vampire in those days because it's more than a day's ride, and you know, yeah. there's a sun problem. Um. So yeah, like it's it's he was fun to write because I, I didn't have too much um 
background on him. You know, he, he, he's a, a Becker character. So I had like a bit of a description, but then like I got to flesh him out a lot. And that's so cool that he's getting a big piece of art. I can't wait to see it. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, hopefully the backer listens to this and we'll be jumping with joy. Yeah, but, I hope so. Uh, I like Derek. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you did mention the Hecata and we probably should discuss them. Uh, so At least in brief before we wrap up. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't think we've ever discussed before the many iterations of uh, the Hecata name that we went through. Uh, oh, no. This was back not. when I was working on the V5 core book. And uh, initially, they were just going to be called the Clan of Death. We weren't going to call the Giovanni the Giovanni anymore, largely because of the entire naming convention thing of it being predominantly a first name not exclusively a first name but predominantly uh one yeah. in italy and mm-hmm. so and because we were murmuring about the idea of various bloodlines from the clan of death rejoining the fold it was just going to be that their name was rather nebulously the clan of death whereas everyone else had a name they were right. more of a faction and then we decided no it's too much of a mouthful and a lot of people won't enjoy that. And so we went through a whole bunch of iterations of names. And uh, in fact, I should have prepared this. I was going to say, do you remember any of them? Because I would love to. Um, well, I will edit down um, this bit of me rambling. But no, I'll, just just, uh, just type. We can all hear you typing. It's fun. Type, click, okay, type, yeah. click. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, I will then. Uh, so <laughs> let's see. Ah, it looks like I have searched for this at some point in the past. Okay, then. So, um, we had the, we called them the Familia at one point, so just the family, right. which mm-hmm. I think, you know, works on some level. Um, we have got the Familia Mortis, Familia Dispeta, the Mortia, the Disarx, the Mortum, the Plutoon. Uh, the what well, I didn't really just like this one. Hades get Hades sons. The Hadarks. <laughs> the Hadarks. Or Hadearchs. Uh, Arcs, you know, uh, uh, being progeny of, and yeah. Um, mm. the Familia Erichthos. Um, most famous necromancer in Roman legend. Um, the family Familia Trivia because Trivia is the Roman name of Hecate. Yeah, but that just sounds um, silly. Familia <laughs> yeah, Trivia. It, uh, yeah, that's uh, like fam- that's like trivia night at an Italian restaurant, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had uh, the Familia Cadis, which means the family of slaughter or Cadians, and I quite like Cadians. Uh, I but like Cadians, end- but I feel like it's too close to Arcadians or Arcadia. Yeah. 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 Uh, spelt a little differently, but in the end, yeah, we went for Hecata and uh, tying it to Hecate. But we added a line to the uh, manuscript, or I added a line that has one of the characters saying, So what? We've changed our name. You know, do you, what? Do you think the Giovanni was the first name for the Clan of Death? Do you think the Cappadocians was the first name for the Clan of Death? <laughs> Did, where, what were we called before Cappadocia existed? Right, and you know, and likewise, maybe we were called the Hecata before, maybe not. It doesn't really matter, and that's something I think often gets lost in vampire. That there's sometimes people will try and follow the genesis of a name, despite the fact it's clearly modern, like Toreador, uh, or at least within the last uh, few hundred years. 
and say, well, there's no way that could have existed in the uh, time of ancient Rome. Well, no, you're right. It probably didn't. Uh, but come up with something different if you want to. Um, but yeah, we added the Hecata to Cults of the Blood Gods uh, for much the same reason as we did the Clan La Sombra. Uh, mm-hmm. The V5 core book in Chicago by Night, that is. Uh, the V5 core book didn't have all of the clans in to the consternation of many. And the reason was because the V5 core book was supposed to be very much focused on the clans that largely dealt with humanity and street-level adventure, if you like, and street-level politics. And pretty much all of the independent clans of old and Sabat clans of old were so esoteric in their focus that they just would have required more explanation than we wanted to focus on in the core book. So initially, when we were writing the core, I wrote all of the clans up. Um, but they just didn't end up in there. So then when it came to the Anarch and Camarilla books, we put the Ministry and Anarch, Banu Hakim and Camarilla, then we got to Chicago, the La Sombra ended up in there, Cults of the Blood Gods, the Hecata ended up in there. Because it was a natural fit for them. They right. are likewise a very much a pyramid scheme, much as most cults are, in a sense, in that they are all about family worship, uh, deferring to one's elders and ancestors in the case of the Hecata, especially the Giovanni. Mm-hmm. And it pleases me to no end that the two clans that have received more coverage than any other in Vampire the Masquerade, 5th edition, are the La Sombra and the Hecata. Uh, mm-hmm. that they both get their clan splat and they get a whole history chapter explaining what they're doing in the modern nights where right. the Ventru, Gangrel and other popular clans don't get that much. <laughs> I'm sure they will at some point. But it um, makes me very happy that two clans that weren't the most popular have now got a ton of content. And and it seems to have worked because the number of people who post on Discord, on Facebook and everything, that they are playing Hecata. They have made their first Hecata and they're really happy to or excited to play this Necromancer. Really thrills me as a developer because yeah. I remember I remember way back during Gehenna, in fact it may have been I can't think that this is what led to the Ravnos being purged. I think it was after the Ravnos. Uh, Persian time of thin blood, but the old White Wolf website in two thousand and one maybe did a poll of favorite clans. Simple enough thing. Mm-hmm. And Giovanni and Ravnos were always pretty firmly at the bottom. And then Paradox did one when they took over the the brand, and it's largely to inform business partners. Uh, this isn't NDA protected or anything like that. It's simple marketing that they did a big poll of customers. You go on worldofdarkness.com and you could rank your favorite clans and they email right. people as well. And it informs them that, okay, well, if no one is interested in the Giovanni, as they were called at that early point, or other bloodlines, then we shouldn't do video games based on exclusively playing the Giovanni or Akia Seed. Right. Right. But now as a result of the content and Cults of the Blood Gods, and this is just from backer PDFs only, it's only just now come out on general release, Mm -hmm. you are seeing loads of people online talking about playing the Hecata. And Mm -hmm. that tells me that we did something very right with the way we presented them in this book, that people finally get them and 
are excited by them. Yeah. Also in my home game, I'm uh, talking to my storyteller about maybe being able to take one of the Hakata's Oblivion powers as my Lasombra, just because <laughs> there's a couple of them that are really cool that I'd like to have. And I'm like, it's still Oblivion. Come on. I can learn that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, rules rules is written. You can indeed. Yeah. So like, I don't want all of them because like, I'm not really into the like super like necromancy stuff for my character because that's not really what she does. But like, she does you know, kill people, and the necrotic plague would be pretty cool to be able to put in there, even though it's a two stain power. Um, so yeah, there's well, there's there's quite a few oblivion powers in there that are super cool, and like the ones that that the, the Lasombra already have are amazing. But I don't know, I just wanted extra powers. I just want to be special. Ne- necrotic <laughs> plague is an interesting one, actually, uh, and I wouldn't have raised it unless you had because it's the oblivion power that's had the most amount of criticism from oh, yeah? cults. And it's largely the argument of, when would I use this? Uh, because Necrotic Plague, as written, is essentially the ability to issue forth a Necrotic Plague that only afflicts mortals. And if you're in a confined space, let's say a subway train, pretty much everyone on that train is going to go home with a contagious plague now. Right. Now... Players online have said, well, this is a game breaker, or this is something I'm never going to use because of the number of stains attached to it. And that's fine. That's the thing. Yeah, totally. Some powers can be situational, but I really like the fact that they have one of these explosive all-or-nothing powers that could destabilize a domain, that if you use it in the right way, if you are a Hecata mercenary that is affiliated with the Anarchs and you really want to screw up the supply lines of some vampire's traffic from this place to the other, or maybe the Nosferatu runs the subway in this domain, you use the Necrotic Plague on the subway platform. Now the subway's closed down. Now the Nosferatu's got no income or has no easy channel of uh, prey to flow through it. Mm-hmm. You use them in the right places and you don't do it to infect people. You don't do it to kill people. That isn't the end result, unless you are homicidal, which is a possibility. You do it because of the repercussions of unleashing a dirty bomb. Yeah, like, it's it's, it's definitely uh, not... It's it's not a fun power to like un- unleash on Kindred, but it's like if I'm playing it like in my current game, I'm playing a Chicago Camarilla, you know, vampire. Um, and so if the Gary vamps are pissing me off, or the, you know, various other clans are pissing me off, I can just go contaminate their supply and be like, yeah. screw you. And it's a horrific thing to do to people, but I'm not a good person. I'm a vampire. Um, right. And especially if you get lower humanity. Like, would I want to do that in real life? No, that's chemical warfare. Um, or, you know, biological warfare. But as a vampire, sometimes you do shit like that. I mean, I, I took somebody's eyes away in my game at one point because they were dominating people. And I was like, "Stop that!" <laughs> and I and I made their eyes shrivel up because it's a thing I can do. It's wonderful. I, I did something similar in Shadowrun once to get past someone's uh, get past a retina scan, and oh, the GM yeah. said at the end of the session, "You could have just asked." <laughs> uh, in your case, you could have maybe put a blindfold on. <laughs> it was Jason Newberry. I did not feel bad about it. Oh no no! Yes, son deserves. <laughs> he that, was right? he was trying to dominate our, our our Mulcavian, and I was just like, "You stop stop that stop that right now." Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I've 
I think if so, one of the criticisms that Necrotic Plague has received as well is this would make everyone hate the Hecata. To which my answer is yes, uh-huh. exactly. There is a reason this clan. It, so being the clan of death isn't all about being cool, goth, and edgy. It isn't about always wearing black and being on the fringe of society, although that is cool, especially when you're a vampire. It's like being a double vampire. <laughs> that, that, it's, it's double pretty, vampire. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to be un-undead. But <laughs> at, the same, but at the same time, there's a reason no one invites them to parties. There's a reason they aren't a member of any sect. And it's because when the Cappadocans were around or the Giovanni were around, all the incestuous diablery aside, they were a weird clan that was focused on corpses, plague, uh, yeah, the decay and, and so on. And most people, especially neonates, death and especially the Black Death, and illnesses like it were terrifying. They would cull cull your herds. They would wipe out entire domains or make them uninhabitable for a while and you'd have to move on. So having a vampire around that can actually manipulate that kind of thing isn't a good thing. And so the Giovanni have been distancing themselves from that for 500 years and erecting this fantastic front of being gangsters and money men and and occasional mercenaries but no 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 we don't deal with any of that weird shit from 500 <laughs> years ago right uh, when of course they've just been feverishly beavering away in their own mausoleum refining the process and and practicing it on spirits instead and now that the Cappadocians and Samadhi are back in the fold they can go about issuing as many necrotic plagues as they want across the world and see what happens. So so what I'm hearing is a bunch of necromantic vampires got together 500 years ago and said, you know what? We have a real strong PR problem in terms of people <laughs> really hating what's going on here. What would make our public image look better? I know, incest. That would work great for us. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's... it's... You joke, you joke. But, <laughs> I do but, joke, <laughs> but, but it's but if you like, and I know I'm reading more into historic vampire material than actually exists. But it, but creating a more palatable scandal than the existing scandal, incest or not, is a fantastic way of deflecting from what you're actually up to. And... No, one thing that one thing we've learned in the modern past four years is that um, if you the the palatable sensational scandal can deflect attention from the deeper, more systemic problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and ultimately, the reason stated in a couple of books that the Giovanni were never just wiped out or weren't hated like the Tremere were hated for what they did to the Salubri is because the Giovanni handled it all internally. As far as the rest mm-hmm. of the world was concerned, it was just a change on the plate, you know, the nameplate. They changed their name from Cappadocians to Giovanni. They were still death-obsessed. They were still right. mostly neutral in political conflict. They just cleaned up their house a little and got rid of some of the old wood. And, yeah, uh, they just essentially rebranded their company, said, we're now going to be focusing on internal issues rather than expanding externally, have fun with the rest of the world, we'll rejoin the market when it's more suited to us. And Mm -hmm. so they retreat, they stay neutral for 500 years, 
occasionally dipping in and out of the jihad and then or the eternal struggle as we call it now and um yeah now they are at the precipice of rejoining it because as we've established in the book their promise of neutrality runs out in 2028 Mm -hmm. Uh, so they're going to have to fall down on one side or other or that pact is going to have to be renewed or they're going to be hunted so they are right now strengthening themselves uh, and of course the big spoiler from cults of the blood gods is the hecata are the only clan to not suffer the beckoning uh, and the reason for that isn't given as a hard line reason this is why and they certainly don't advertise it to any other clan because they like to appear like they're on the fringe and they're weak but they're the only clan that hasn't lost a great catchment of elders to wherever this Gehenna war is going on. Yeah, they've purged some of their own elders, and if you want to speak, I guess, from a bloodline perspective, the reason they've probably been unaffected is they did such a damn good job of wiping out their antediluvian and Methuselahs 500 years ago that there aren't many of them to be beckoned. But it doesn't necessarily explain all of it. So... Yeah, I will say one thing. One thing I'm uh, a very minor thing, but as as a fan of Empire, one of the things I've loved that you've toyed with in, in V5 and a little bit in uh, Beckett's is the promise, because the promise is my favorite bit of dumb, weird vampire lore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like we have this contract we signed 500 years ago that we're beholden to. What is what's in it? Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 and everyone's just like okay with that. It's like yep, yeah, sure, we're all beholden to a contract that no one understands. That makes perfect sense. Let's do that. <laughs> I just love yeah. that. And the fact that we're I, I touched it on a little bit in V20 and the fact that you're spinning it out more and, and, and playing with the fact it's like okay, this is genuinely odd and there must be something going on here but also the you know the fact that the end of this thing is coming in a realistic time frame for for campaigns um and it's just like oh this is a secret contract that no one knows what's in it and also it's expiring is that good is that bad what's going to happen with that it's the gehenna (laughs) event it's their final nights if you like because yes the giovanni had the endless night i know we're running long but we'll, we'll wrap up soon um Yeah, uh, they had the Endless Night, which I've stated elsewhere is a dead-end plot, and uh, I think that put a few noses out of joint, but my reason for saying that is because it is a plot that you will only ever really pursue if you are playing a Hecata-only Chronicle, which is fine if you do that, and the Endless Night is your thing, but it does pretty much end the World of Darkness as you know it, and there will never be any books to support that version of the World of Darkness. Right. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm confident that there will never be a world of darkness where the shroud has fallen and mortals are constantly being harassed by wraiths but mm-hmm. i've not seen wraith fifth edition so i could be wrong <laughs> uh, yes. yes hedge my bets there uh, but yeah the idea that your clan is living on borrowed time and at some point in te- in the next 10 years eyes are going to turn on you and the only people who really know about it are probably the justicars and the inner circle uh, I doubt mm-hmm. there are any Anarchs that are old enough to remember, and maybe some Sabat Cardinals. So, is it a real threat or not? The only people who are really interested in this are the Hecata themselves. And mm-hmm. they have probably whipped themselves up into a paranoid frenzy about it because they don't know whether the Camarilla intends to act on it. So, yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I. I I appreciate you saying that, Eddie, because 
it's one of my favourite things to find these minor weird threads in previous vampire books and expand them into something usable mm-hmm. and plot pertinent. It's like the, the invitation to the Setites to join the Camarilla, which right. appears in clan book followers of Set Revised. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only place and a Vitesse card. I mean, hell, uh, that was basically the pitch for Beckett's Jihad Diary was take all the yeah. fun little threads that hasn't been touched on and do something with them. And you're yeah. like, okay. You and Neil just went, zoom. <laughs> oh, yeah, pages. yeah. Nonsense. And yeah, <laughs> no, credit where it's due, Neil is fantastic at that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, it's, it's a great joy of mine. But to, to wrap it up, Cults of the Blood Gods is definitely a horrifying book. It has a lot of uh, subject material that some people are going to be uncomfortable with as it pertains to cults and religious horror and manipulation and abuse. Uh, But it is also a book that contains a hell of a lot of player options, a hell of a lot of player options, because if you can see the the cults as almost like a third tier of you've got your sect, you've got your clan, now you've got a cult as well if you want it. Uh, is, I think, uh, a wonderful step to layering Vampire the Masquerade. But it also has a whole new clan to play in the Hakata. It has a discipline completely filled out, and you can expand it if you want with Chicago by Night. Um, so it's a... And it has a scenario that we didn't even touch on in it. And there are three other books coming up that cover cults in various other details, in various other ways, too. So, yep. yeah, uh, I think it has been a total success and I look forward to seeing how well it does not drive through RPG. Woo. I'm excited. Whoop, and getting game stores because we're traditional printed too. Yep, yep. We will be getting it into your friendly local gaming stores too. All they have to do is order a copy. So, with that said, Dixie, if people wanted to find you online, where would they go? You can find me at most places at DixieCyanide.com uh, which means if you want to talk to me about any of the characters I wrote for cults, feel free. Reach out. I'm on Twitter. It's fun. And if they wanted to indoctrinate you into a cult, Eddie, where would they go? Oh, uh, that's easy. Go to Scientology.org. No, um, uh, you can Are find they a .org? At... <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I don't know. .gov. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> you can find me at Pugsteady.com. From there, you can access to all my social media accounts. And also, you can find me hanging out on the Honest Path Discord. They are a .org. Yep. I just looked it up. Scientology.org <laughs> is the actual Scientology website. <laughs> I was right. Uh, and I will put the Heaven's Gate website in the please don't uh, in the description. <laughs> please don't do that. It's sti- it's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. Who is running this damn website? I don't know. I do love that it's still up and that it's still like a GeoCities type of website, isn't it? Like it's, it's terrible. Yeah, there's yeah. only a, there's not many mainstream websites that look like that anymore. There's the one for Space Jam. Uh, the Space Jam website set up when the movie was new still works in mm-hmm. every single way, and it's very weird. It's like going through a time machine looking at it. But next to Space Jam, you have the Heaven's Gate website, uh, which likewise, all the links still work on it, uh, which is just as unusual. And you won't find me on there, but you will find me on MatthewDawkins.com. And you will also find me on the Onyx Path Discord. Do join, uh, because we like to talk about all of our books on there, and you can ask us questions, and we will hopefully answer. And I love the episode that we just released with Danielle at the very end. We did talk about adding more channels, and then we did that. So there's a ton of new channels in uh, Mm -hmm. in our Discord. That's true. Well, with that said, 
thank you very much everyone for listening many worlds one path cast